0: Hello, this is Dr. Robert Malone, and you're listening to the Hall of Mirrors podcast. Gentlemen. Uh,
1: Dr. Malone, thanks for joining us. Um, I'm not sure if you've looked at any of our previous podcasts. Um, We started this talk, this freedom of choice topic uh, back in July, and it just caught on fire on specifically Facebook where uh, we have like over 17,000 nurses, healthcare workers, first responders, et cetera, et cetera, that came to us because we were one of few podcasts that actually didn't mind talking about it. And uh, we haven't been deplatformed, so it's been great. And um, we're so thankful that you came on today because everybody wants the, the real, the, the facts. We're trying to find truth. And uh, you're the man as far as I'm concerned.
0: Well, that's kind. Um don't expect to stay on Facebook much longer. They're uh cleaning house all the time. They I just got a notice of another uh group that um got deplatformed that was a uh um vaccine injured group.
1: Interesting. Well, we've we're in uh YouTube jail. So uh we've got that going for us. We
2: <laughs> we made a mistake about us talking about what's going on in Australia right now and uh God forbid we we had somebody from Australia on our show, and uh unfortunately it took a, less than twenty four hours for YouTube to put us in uh, the two week uh,
1: hold period <laughs> yeah, one more strike and we're yeah, gone. i not
0: not 't know why you would even bother dealing with those platforms anymore they are i don 't know if you saw the the um legal case uh, disclosure from facebook uh that came out i I tweeted about it i think two days ago um they're, they're they fully admit that what they're doing is propaganda
1: yeah, I did I, I shared a, a post yesterday that yeah it's all opinion based uh, and that's unfortunate but, but but uh you know I thought YouTube would be the place for us, and it's it definitely wasn't because we were we've been censored from the beginning, and you, you just don't know until you look at numbers but when you have when you're looking at the analytics of it, um, everybody's on Facebook watching us and and our demographic is an older you know uh, largely female um healthcare healthcare workers in their 40s 50s and that's where they're at is facebook so but, i mean rumble we have an account but it's it's um it's more difficult for people to use it seems like and it's difficult for us to use um and i don't
2: know yeah, we're we're going we're going to have to uh we're being forced to basically go that route which not is necessarily a bad thing we we also know that uh is it uh the former president trump uh is back in another social media platform as well. Uh what what is that called? Do you you recall, Doctor?
0: No. Right. Um, uh, so- a lot of a lot of folks are going together. Um but yeah you have to you I I definitely recommend you uh you at at a minimum back up every single uh podcast you've done and uh Get it over to um, one or more of the alternative platforms uh before you get deplatformed. that's absolutely that's the lesson learned
1: yeah I, we stream on all uh audio podcast platforms uh, I have multiple hard drives uh, we i've i've had i 'm assuming it's a government entity uh inside of my phone that's a whole <laughs> that's a whole topic. that's a whole nother topic so I know that uh We talk about that after our podcast, but yeah, we're, we're concerned and, uh, we've we've been backing up stuff, but anyways, yeah,
0: that's just what you have to do. That's the, that's the new, the new reality here in, in, uh, the USA, good old USA.
2: So, so doctor, before we start, um, and get into the meat and potatoes of, of, uh, this podcast, I'd like, I'd like to qualify our uh, those that are guests that, that we speak with so can you tell us a little bit about your background you're a molecular bio, bio,
0: Virologist. Me, thank you now say that three times um, <laughs> I can't even really say fast. it once doctor uh, so actually I was originally a carpenter and a farmhand before I became a physician and a scientist I we're currently on our fifth small farm that we've rebuilt uh, we breed percheron lusitana horses, but that's not why people want to listen to me, um, <laughs> unless they're a very small subset of breeders in Portugal. Okay. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm a physician scientist that was uh, trained at, at um, University of California Davis in biochemistry, uh, Northwestern University in Chicago in medicine. Uh, uh, UC San Diego and the Salk Institute in molecular virology, immunology, uh, molecular biology. And uh, at the Salk, that was the uh, molecular biology and virology labs. Uh, That's where the discoveries that I made between 87 and 89 that gave rise to nine issued US patents that are the platform basis for mRNA vaccines. Um, Despite what Time Magazine is putting out, uh Curico and Weissman uh came about a decade later. Uh okay. so uh when I say that I'm the inventor of of the mRNA vaccine technology platform, it's not something made up. It's uh inventorship in my opinion is is granted by the US Patent and Trademark Office, not by fact checkers working for Facebook. Correct. Uh I uh, was an academic for many years. I have many other patents and fundamental discoveries I've started companies, I've worked for large pharma, I've worked for a Gates funded vaccine company. I've spent my entire career focused on vaccines and infectious disease countermeasures. After the planes hit the towers and the anthrax attacks, I went to work for a company called Vineport Vaccine Company as uh, their associate director of clinical research. And uh, um, at that time we had the portfolio of all vaccines and, and medical countermeasures in advanced development for the Department of Defense, so uh, I, I was seminal in, in at the tip of the spear in bringing forward the Ebola vaccine and getting Merck involved. So that's now we know that as the Merck Ebola vaccine. I've been involved in flu vaccines, you know, all the biodefense vaccines, tuberculosis vaccines. I'm a vaccinologist with deep, deep connections in the U.S. government historically mostly working closely with the U S department of defense, but also with the NIAID, they for years have called me in, although I suspect that's going to taper off now. Um, sure. They, uh, that's a joke, son. Um, <laughs> uh, so, um, uh, back in the day they used to have me chair a uh, study sections for hundred plus million dollar contracts for vaccine development. Uh, um, and, uh, so, so I'm, this is basically what I do for a living. During Zika, I led a group. Often what I do is assemble teams to solve complicated problems, uh, for and with the government. I was, uh, right at the front with Zika with repurposing drugs because I thought that that was the best path forward for that disease. Many of the drugs that are being used right now in, uh, and SARS-CoV-2 early treatment, I had filed patents on for Zika, but then Zika petered out and investors had absolutely no interest in any of that. And so that company uh, collapsed and and we abandoned those patents. I was called by a CAA officer on January 4th of 2020, who was in Wuhan, who told me I need to get my team spun up for this particular virus. At the time we were working on um, sophisticated computational and robotic bio-robotic strategies for identifying drugs to uh, um, treat and, and counteract uh, uh, various neurotoxins and, and pesticide agents. Uh, um, and uh, so I got that team to pivot voluntarily and start working on repurposing drugs for this virus. Um, we're the ones that came up with uh, Femadidine, so that's Pepsid, and also the combination of Pepsid plus Celebrex. Uh, I, I, and then my story kind of winds uh, close communication with senior colleagues at the FDA about ivermectin and various other things. Um, I, I was the editor of the Pierre Corey article, on a summary article on ivermectin that got whacked by Frontiers in Pharmacology. Um, actually had helped build that special edition that it eventually got we canceled it because of the interference from the senior editor okay so i've 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 experienced the censorship and and you know early drug treatments and and uh, the vaccine issues et cetera et cetera and then and then uh, basically the Brett weinstein podcast happened uh, Dark Horse podcast with me and Brent and Steve Kirsch and kind of lit the whole world on fire, and my life hasn't really been the same since. Sure. So,
1: so uh, I want I to. Can you hold your thought yeah, for one second? I want to ask you about Pepsid. I was reading some of your your uh, papers and, and some of the articles about. I happened to was on an H one H two blocker, um, AM PM for a um, autoimmune issue I'm dealing with uh, called vasculitis. Where it yep. would manifest on the skin, um, and uh, so I was reading a little bit about Pepsid. Can you explain to people that just you know, for in layman's terms, how Pepsid
0: uh, interacts with COVID nineteen, and how it could be? So the so it's and and the best is so I'm going to talk about the combination of Pepsid and Celebrex, if you don't mind. Sure. Or Celecoxib is the technical term. So. Pepsid is called Femotidine. If you go down to Walgreens, you can buy it as, as generic Femotidine. And Celebrex is, uh, requires a prescription. Um, that's celecoxib, but that's also generic. So uh, the virus has two phases of, of disease. It causes disease in two phases. The first one is the viral syndrome. It lasts for five to seven days, after which you can really not culture live virus. The virus is pretty much gone. Um, perhaps in somebody who's grossly immunosuppressed, that might be the difference. But for most of us, that's the case. That's not what kills you. What kills you is the inflammatory response, your body's reaction to the virus and the virus proteins. That's what gets you. That's what causes all the lung damage, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. So the good news is that we've got Tons of anti-inflammatory drugs, and you just mentioned a couple, um, H1 and H2 blockers. And in fact, there's data supporting the use of both H1 blockers and H2 blockers. So what is this? Is we're we're geeking out here talking about these things? What we're talking about is that the molecule histamine. Many of you may know about histamine. Histamine has four different receptors. It can interact with your cells using four different pathways that are related. And these are called the four histamine receptors, H1, H2, H3, and H4. And they're distributed in different ways in different places in your body. Uh, And uh, H1 is uh, often more cutaneous, so skin and also vascular. H2, is notorious for, so this is what you take uh, to stop your stomach acid secretion. It's actually the less preferred. Um, it's less effective to stop stomach acid secretion than some of the other blockers. Um, but it is exquisitely sensitive for this histamine H2 receptor. The, the name was actually coined in Germany, and it refers to the activity is so amazingly potent that it's famous among pharmacologists. And so it's famotidine. It's technically how the name comes about, commodity. okay? Um, so it's, it's just one of those molecules that happens to be super, super potent at blocking this particular receptor, histamine H2. Who cares? Well, um, if you have mast cell disorder or mast cells are these cells in your body that contain all kinds of inflammatory cytokines and other signaling molecules. And uh, the original paper that we put out um, was the one that uh, first pushed the mast cell hypothesis for this inflammatory phase of SARS-CoV-2. We had this discovery like in, I don't know, April. The the genesis of this was that I was actually lying sick in bed after getting infected in late February in Boston with the biogen outbreak, and we had identified famotidine as one of the potential inhibitors of the virus based on computational modeling and docking. It's called, and I and I I knew that. Well, I thought that I was going to die. Frankly, um, it was uh, my lungs were burning. I couldn't breathe very well. I was having night sweats. I was a hot mess. But, you know, back then, nobody knew anything about how to treat this thing. Right. And so I started taking some of the drugs that we'd identified through computational screening. And when I started taking Tepsid, and Monodine, I could immediately feel a change in my ability to breathe, exercise tolerance, and the sense of burning in my lungs went away within about 15 minutes. And so oh. by that, I knew I had something. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and that's been reproduced by uh, a lot of people. Um, there was a, I, I wrote the $20 million contract for BARDA to do inpatient studies of that and Northwell Health really buggered it up. Um, and so that ended up an inconclusive study, but subsequent studies, both retrospective and prospective have demonstrated that pomatidine alone can have a significant impact on clinical disease, particularly in the outpatient, but you have to take enough of it. And what you're doing is uh, not treating stomach acid, you're treating systemically, you're blocking the histamine H2 receptors on mast cells, which are involved in firing off mast cells, and then mast cells release stuff that triggers the whole inflammatory cytokine cascade downstream. Now, it turns out the virus actually has two different pathways to flip on um, another key inflammatory protein called cox-2 cox-2 is inhibited by the the uh specific inhibitor celecoxib, um and it's also inhibited both cox-1 and cox-2 by a, a horse drug um uh, <laughs> so get ready for this okay <laughs> it's it's a horse drug called aspirin um so it turns out that aspirin is actually effective there's There's good data on this. It's there's more than one positive. horse drug <laughs> <laughs> precisely um and uh and I'm just obviously for your audience i'm we're all understanding how there's been this huge uh media propaganda campaign to shut down um and call this a horse drug, but in fact it's a nobel prize winning drug that is transformed. A lot of the parasitic worm diseases in Africa, and is routinely deployed in the hundreds of millions of doses every year, and is one of the safest drugs in the world, and is on the WHO list of essential medicines. There, we just check that box. All right. In any case, um, so Cox two is flipped on by two of the viral proteins, one of which is called Spike, um, and so this is why some people use the combination of selicoxib and Spike. Uh, for the post-vaccination syndrome. So the bottom line is that you have inflammatory cells in your body and when they get fired off, they start releasing stuff and they get fired off by viral proteins, among other things. And that triggers the whole inflammatory cascade in the second phase of the virus, that is what ends up putting you in the hospital or killing you. So okay. for your readership, you may, or, or viewership, um, what I, I often get the feedback, um, people will take the early treatments that have been pr- protocols that have been developed by, you know, Pierre Corey and FLCCC and Richard Erso and uh, many, many others, um, George Fareed. Uh, and and they they sometimes they start taking them. They they get on it real early. If they're, you know, buddies of mine, they've heard the message early treatment saves lives and they'll start treating with these agents, you know, that may include, uh, ivermectin, and, and um, hydroxychloroquine and they'll feel good after a few days and they'll say, Oh, I don't have to take the medicine anymore. And then the second phase kicks in, and then they, then they the I should laugh. Then they, then they get damaged. Um, and, right. and then they're, they're, they're calling me saying, Oh, I should have listened to you. So please remember that this disease has two phases and just because you get through the first phase doesn't mean you're going to skate right through the second phase because you still have the damaged viral antigens and particles floating around your body and those trigger set off mast cells and other inflammatory cells and that sets off this whole second cascade which is what the high dose pomodidine plus celecoxib helps shut down but so do many of the other agents that are being used right now. So so I hope that helps.
1: Yeah. To to finish off my thought on on Pepsi before Mike gets going, I tend to, at at this point in my life, uh, think everything happens for a reason. I was the healthiest I've ever been in my life. I'm 36 now. When I was 33, 2018, uh, well, I guess 30, yeah, 33. I got really, really sick. Had no idea what was going on with me. Went to Mayo Clinic for a couple of weeks, ended up being diagnosed with, uh, a rare case of vasculitis. I'm like, oh my gosh, now I got all these drugs. Well, I was taking Allegra and Pepsid in the morning, Zyrtec and Pepsid at night. Um, eventually, I'm still taking methotrexate. Uh, but for a whole year, I was also on hydroxychloroquine. And I have to think, maybe God works, obviously, in mysterious ways that I haven't contracted covid my wife's a nurse she's around covid patients all the time uh no doubt she's probably been a carrier of it she's never had it but uh maybe all these prophylactic drugs i've taken have saved my life or kept me from being so to your
0: point to your point uh there's this inexplicable um lack of mortality extremely low mortality numbers throughout central africa And um, the problem is people immediately have jumped on that and said, it's because they're all taking ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. Uh, Hold back, not so simple. They're all so skinny and young um, for the most part. They generally don't have a problem with obesity, unlike North Americans, um, but but they do take those agents. And there's no question that the, Tiny, tiny morbidity and mortality observed in Central Africa is, um, is something that needs to be understood because it's not because they're taking vaccines. Now, the other thing, just to caution you, is that I gotta say, with Omicron, there is a darn good chance you're gonna get infected and, and be ready for it. Um, and, uh, it blows right through the vaccines, even, even, um, triple jabbed. Despite what Pfizer says um, that just came out of the recent CDC data so that that thing will spread across this winter and uh, the good news is that all the all the fear porn from CNN etc they' there I think they've now found one death worldwide um, from Omicron and that wasn't characterized I suspect that person must have had other pre-existing problems so but be aware don't you know there's there's those that that take the position some of my colleagues that it, this is a one and done if you have natural immunity you're protected forever i can tell you from personal experience that's not true uh i've had two rounds um of infection one was just a few weeks ago so uh and and i and it lasted is it very short i handled it well uh, but uh but don't don't um don't assume that you're bulletproof.
1: May I ask you a question?
0: Because one of our,
1: I I, pr- I printed out uh, some you or some Facebook questions from our from our followers. One of them assumed that you were vaccinated. That's true. And you still had it twice.
0: Correct. I had. I was infected in late February with the of uh, 2020 with the biogen outbreak. Then I took the jab, um, what was it, Jill? April, May of 21, of um, and that was Moderna. I had a major adverse event on uh, my systolic blood pressure went to 230, fortunately oh. okay, was able to be controlled. Um, that's a known adverse event of, of the vaccines. Also had restless leg syndrome, some brain fog, and number of other things, narcolepsy uh, that are known side effects of the jab. And then uh, now the, the the complication there is there are data that the vaccination, number one, is much higher risk if you've previously been infected. So the key lesson there is uh, if your kids, you know, with your kids, um, kids didn't take the jab at all as far as I'm concerned. But remember that about half of the children have already been infected, which means their risks of adverse events are higher. Uh, and the same holds true for you. Um, if, you've, if you've been uh, jabbed and then, I'm just, sorry, previously infected and then I get jabbed. And that probably has to do with formation of immune complexes, uh, and then, then I did get uh, another infection a few weeks ago. That's currently being sequenced to see if I was an early Omicron or what. Interesting. So don't assume don't assume that uh, you're bulletproof, uh, even if you have natural immunity. That's the data showing that that certainly your disease severity is greatly reduced. Certainly, your risks of disease with Delta. Are substantially lower than those with those that have just received vaccine. But the data also show that um, the vaccination on top of prior natural infection can uh, actually damage your immunity and um, lead to higher incidence of adverse events. Now you mentioned that your readership is is has many nurses and other medical healthcare professionals. And so this is a topic that is of particular interest to them. And absolutely. Uh, I I I my advice is absolutely document that you previously uh, if you if you're naturally immune and you've recovered because you've been providing frontline care, make sure you document that before you get the jab. And then if you get the if you're gonna do the jab, i I'd also recommend that you do some pre and post testing at a minimum D dimer. Uh, Because at some point in time, if you're a medical professional and your hospital is forcing you to take the jab, um, if you have an adverse event, you're going to want to be able to document that the adverse event was attributed to the vaccine. (laughs) You're going to want to have some data to do that because there's going to be ambulance chasing lawyers uh, for years. This is going to be like uh, asbestos in the tobacco settlement as far as I'm concerned.
1: We talked about that. And a lot of people think that that, that may not ha- happen because when you get the vaccine, all the, all the big pharma companies are somehow covered.
0: They are indemnified, and so there's some nuances here. Uh, one of them is that if Pfizer, uh, for example, um, has not disclosed information about risks that they are aware of, then they have criminal malfeasance and then they can, then you can drill through the uh, multiple layers of indemnification that our government has kindly provided to them here in the United States. So here there's basically. some nuances here. And then if it's your, if it's a private company, remember, uh, so if you're working for a hospital chain and they're mandating that you take the jab, they're not, they, they're doing that of their own volition. That is not a federal mandate that they do that. There is federal coercion that they do that, but it's not a federal mandate. So you can't pin it on the feds. You're going to end up pinning it on the CEO and the other characters in the hospital system, and that's that's uh, you know that's that's the territory we're we're moving into now. Um, uh, so it's multi-pronged. But there are a lot of clever lawyers on both sides trying to figure out how to work this thing. But you're absolutely right; the core part of the problem that somehow we got to fix going forward is this perverse incentive uh, for pharmaceutical companies to disregard the safety signals uh, because it's all profit for them and no risk because of how our government has set up the situation.
2: Yeah. So, so I, I'd like to ask you. You were the godfather of the mRNA vaccines. Uh, the the testing. What was it originally developed for? What? what why were you uh, developing it at that point? In 1980. the godfather.
0: I'm not sure that godfather is the uh, uh, the image that I want here. Um, Sorry, uh, I gave you that. I had to
1: come <laughs> up with something unique. I thought it was
0: excellent. Uh, yeah, I, I get it. Other people have used <laughs> it, but you know that. There is a series of movies and a couple of books about that. Um, so, <laughs> uh, in any case, all kidding aside, the, the genesis of this was that I was asking questions about the packaging of RNA into retroviruses, because retroviruses were the leading uh, technology approach for genetic uh, therapy for children largely inborn errors of metabolism, like muscular dystrophy or cystic fibrosis. And I was a young buck in my uh, late late 20s, mid to late 20s. And I thought that, you know, as a medical student uh, looking forward to becoming an MD, I thought that uh, gene therapy was a field that would grow, explode, and it fit my experience and knowledge profile. And so I was a true believer that this was going to be the way of the future and uh, there were going to be gene therapy clinics in every hospital so i'd be able to get a job Yeah, that's kind of an important thing um and uh so so that's what i was trying to do was come up with improvements on the technology for retroviral based gene therapy these are absolutely by the way I, i get asked to testify in this both the adenovirus vector and the mrna are explicitly gene therapy technologies applied to vaccination indication, full stop, no debate. It came out of a gene therapy lab. I was a gene therapy researcher, um, and that is part of the spectrum of the applications that uh, we've written patents for. Is the okay, so mRNA as a drug?
1: Can I stop you right there? How does that change the body forever? And
2: because I, I guess that there's
1: so, there, there's
2: a sediment out there that the the mrna actually alters your
0: dna so um there there is remember i there's a world i live in a world in which almost everything is possible at some level uh in terms of laboratory bench experimentation and you can demonstrate at a very very low frequency using cell culture if you have cells that are producing reverse transcriptase, which is an enzyme that RNA that retroviruses use, if you have cells that are producing reverse transcriptase. What does that fancy enzyme name mean? Reverse transcriptase means that it's able to reverse the normal flow of genetic information. So it's able to take RNA and make DNA. Normally it goes DNA to RNA to protein. So it's able to work that backwards and make DNA out of RNA. That's what reverse transcriptase does. So and then at some frequency, if there's reverse transcriptase present, then the DNA that's generated potentially can integrate uh, or recombine with the genes, the, the DNA in the um, nucleus of cultured cells. Now, does that, you know, that's, and that's a hard thing to detect. Now, does that mean it's going to be clinically significant and we're all going to become walking, talking GMOs? Uh, no okay there's there's a lot of these theories that are out there that are really kind of clinically clinical red herrings it's important to remember that just because something can be demonstrated in the laboratory and this cuts both ways just because something can be demonstrated in the laboratory doesn't mean that it's going to be clinically significant that's why the next step is we do cell culture studies and then we do animal studies and then if everything looks safe and effective in animal studies only then We carefully start doing human studies in phase one, and we look for these effects. So in terms of the RNA permanently uh, damages or inserts itself into your DNA, um, that is a red herring as far as I'm concerned. Something at extremely low level can be demonstrated in the laboratory under certain conditions. Uh, But has there ever been a demonstration of anything like this being clinically significant? No. And here's here's something a way to think about it that's kind of plain speaking that everybody can get. Influenza is an RNA virus. Um, B strain coronaviruses we've all been infected with, okay? So very really pretty closely related. Okay. Um, circulating uh, cold coronaviruses. And <clears throat> um, so we got influenza, and Um, circulating coronaviruses and rhinoviruses and a bunch of other RNA viruses that infect us. And if this whole theory was working, was clinically significant, the genomes of our cells would be chock full of, of reverse transcribed genes from these viruses that we're normally infected with, that we get much more infection from those than we get from this synthetic gene therapy strategies with the RNA and the, and the uh, adenovirus. So um, I think that it kind of fails the Smith test. And there's a lot of other things to be worried about. Uh, so for me, um, this one is way, 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 way down on the list okay. of, uh, you, of you, stuff to worry about.
2: You, you made mention of uh... How a, a vaccine is rolled out, and you said, you know, obviously through clinical and to, to animal studies. Is this where you started ringing the bell specifically that it was rushed out uh, the the vaccines that, that are being used now for for COVID because proper?
0: I, I well, it was something that command. that yeah. So it was something that um I I had a ser- a group of three buddies that were in senior positions. Uh, in the office of the director, and the office of the chief scientist of the FDA. So they weren't in the review branch. The FDA is parsed into these different bureaucratic categories. And we were having Zoom calls, you know, every week, pretty much, going over what the latest news was and what the drugs were and what was going on with the vaccines. I also have a buddy that I mentored years ago in the Department of Defense, who's now a bird colonel. Uh, that was actually the guy on point to manage OWS for Moderna. So I had a lot of kind of intel about what was going on. And I was sharing information with the FDA through these people. And um, in particular, I raised concerns about the spike protein as an antigen and that the spike protein was biologically active and was a toxin. And so they asked me to send them papers documenting my concerns and i did that and they forwarded them into the review branch because that's how the world works at the fda you don't just like call up peter Marks and say hey can i send you some stuff over (laughs) uh well actually steve kirsch manages to do that i guess they'll they'll pick up the phone and talk to you if you've got a couple hundred million in your wallet but guys like me not so much um and uh so uh so they sent that in, and what came back was, "Oh, well, we're really not very concerned about this, um, and there's no reason here to stop the train uh, and and take a moment and think about this." So everything just proceeded on. Uh, now that you know, there's a whole cascade of events. I often get asked this question, Robert, what radicalized you? Um, what was the thing that really caused you to start talking about these things? And it's a whole series of events. You know, I've been experiencing uh, the media dysfunctionalism, and my wife and I wrote a book. She was the primary author. It was a couple hundred pages. We put out literally in the first week in February, entitled uh, "Protecting, Prepare, and Protect Yourself from the Novel Coronavirus." That was before the thing even had a name. Um, and you know, we put just a lot of practical. Uh, knowledge into from you know we've we've both been involved in many many prior outbreaks so we just put practical knowledge into there and uh among the other things the things that were in there we advocated that people use masks to protect themselves so for self-protection and there was some papers out there not really hard science about that i think that's what caused uh the government to sell um, Amazon that the book had to be censored and deleted and drop. Wow. Um So that was in March or April, I think of 2020. So, and there's many other, you know, examples. I was the editor of the peer Corey review on Ivermectin. Um, and we got that all the way through peer review. He actually paid the money to have it published. And then they, they posted the abstract and it had over a hundred thousand hits. And it got somebody's attention. We, I have no idea who it was. I suspect it's somebody from uh, one of the big pharma. Um, but they called in the journal and told the editor that that it, um, it shouldn't be published, and so he pulled it. Um, and then they pulled other papers that related to early treatment, and uh, including one of mine, uh, and uh, that had been through peer review, in my case, twice. And, and so I've, I've kind of experienced the sharp end of the stick of, uh, our overlords here, um, all the way through this thing. And for me, it's been a, 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 kind of a rough lesson. I've never seen censorship and propaganda like this coordinated internationally in the way that I've seen it during this out- outbreak. And I, and I travel all over the place now these days, um, including in Europe and, uh, What we're observing is not just in the United States; it's the same script, the same methods, same wording, even played over and over and over in different geographic locations, including this practice of hunting physicians
2: um, for the the, spin
0: of trying to save patients um, with early treatments.
2: If they're going under the auspice of saving lives, and I'm talking about the 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 government agencies that both you know uh, locally and internationally. If they're going under that auspice, why would they not want that out? Is it purely greed? Is that the driving so, factor?
0: So that's, so. there's a couple of big why and how questions um, that bedevil all of us. I think anybody that has an open mind is, is not hypnotized here. Um, doctor, before you answer uh,
1: that, I just, I just want to put a disclaimer out. Dr. Malone is not an anti-vaxxer. We are not an anti-vaxxer. This is not about anti vax this is purely information and seeking the truth. That's it. Okay.
0: We're not providing medical treatment advice right. um, uh, through this venue, even though I'm a licensed physician. Uh, so in any case, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think that uh, without a doubt, um, the best volume out right now to explain this is Bobby Kennedy's book on Tony Fauci, which I helped edit. Kind of mentioned Did you? I was going to ask you about
1: Mr. Fauci. I'm glad you mentioned that.
0: Um, So, so that's a good one. Peter Navarro's book is good because he had the front row seat. Uh, and, and so he, he speaks in his book called in Trump time of his own experiences, particularly with hydroxychloroquine and Stephen Hatfield. Uh, so there, there are many, uh, Shots on goal that have been taken about the why question, and then of course there's the whole um, great reset World Economic Forum uh, ball of wax. Uh, it's it's hard to make sense out of the government's decisions here, and uh, uh, you know I'm whenever one of these things kicks off, I do a threat assessment and I act based on that. So the threat assessment I did for our team in the DoD was came to the conclusion that there wasn't time to develop a safe and effective vaccine for this pathogen and we needed to focus on repurposing drugs to save the most lives there's no question it's well well documented for instance in by his own mouth in video uh and there's a super uh, by Rick Bright in his own he's you know in his own words with video testimony that he conspired with Janet Woodcock to make it so that hydroxychloroquine would not be widely available in outpatient environments, despite the fact that that was the specific request of the president of the United States at the time for so COVID-19.
1: No,
0: for COVID-19, there's no, there's no debating this. Um, uh, Bobby talks about it, but Zev Zelenko. So I don't know if you've heard of Zev Zelenko, the um, uh, fundamental uh. Jewish uh, New Yorker that was one of the first to really be advocating for hydroxychloroquine in the United States um, and came up with his own treatment protocol uh, that was in part based on what was being done in France, and was you know it's important to remember, <clears throat> I was the guy that first got the protocol out of China that they were using for treatments and gave it to the US government because I had okay. contacts there. They were using chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. I think, as far as I know, they still are. Uh, So there was a long history of these drugs, but for some reason, Rick Bright got in his brain that uh, he needed to work with Janet Woodcock to concoct some sort of a scheme that uh, would keep it from being used in the outpatient environment, despite the fact that that's what the president wanted based on his communication with Zeb Zelenko. (laughs) And Zeb has put together a great little video that kind of you know goes through all this um so you know it's hard it's hard to explain this without and also the suppression of ivermectin without noting that these are extremely inexpensive drugs that are relatively effective that are off patent and big pharma can't really make a nickel on them because they're outside of their business model Merck, i can tell you from first person because I sit on the active committee for NIH, which is the committee that's running their trials um, the representative from Merck and then subsequently Pfizer actively tried to block the use that the clinical testing of ibromectin in active six and um you know did the usual casting shade uh gas lighting et cetera oh it's so toxic and all that. It's fascinating to go back and look at the Merck disclosure about ivermectin, this drug that they invented, that they one of their scientists got the Nobel Prize for, that they've been giving out hundreds of millions of doses in Africa for years and years, and then they come out with this press release saying that it's toxic and not safe. Um, it's it, you know it's hard not to attribute uh, commercial intent and conflict of interest to uh, the suppression of early treatment. And you know, one, one explanation for that is that um, early treatment was intentionally suppressed because if there was effective early treatment, then um, the clause in the emergency use authorization legislation uh, would be activated, which would block the ability to advance a vaccine under emergency use authorization. Now, what would have been so wrong with not advancing a vaccine under emergency use authorization? Well, it would have meant that they had to do things right. They couldn't cut all the corners like they did. Um, uh, It doesn't mean that we'd never have a vaccine. It means that we would have a vaccine that would be proven safe and effective and would have gone through the normal testing process. And they really wanted to uh, bypass all that.
1: One question I wanted to ask you. I'm, I'm sorry, uh, since you just said okay. that. One question I wanted to ask you is, over the last six months, uh, the government or whoever has changed the definition of vaccine, the language and Webster's, yep. for instance, in several different areas, yep. does the current vaccine fit the definition of a vaccine? So
0: that's, a, that, that's another one <clears throat> that I personally find um, another red herring uh you know that's that's for the legal scholars to debate and and it's and i deal with a lot of high level lawyers these days and i can tell you that none of them find that argument particularly compelling uh technically uh it these vaccines so what i can say for sure about these vaccines right now is they are not they do not meet the usual criteria for efficacy and safety effectiveness and safety Usually a vaccine, uh, a prophylactic vaccine for an infectious disease has to be at least 50% or more effective in stopping transmission. These vaccines don't meet that criteria. So then the government has done this serial modified limited hangout thing where uh, they've fallen back and then fallen back and then fallen back. And now they're dug in on, well, at least it keeps you from dying. And that that seems to be the latest hangout. Um, Now, the the good news is that Omicron, I think there's one dead person in the world that's been attributed to Omicron so far uh, worldwide. (coughs) So um, protecting you from dying is is not a particularly compelling endpoint, in my opinion. Yes, we've had the number of deaths in the elderly and the press always talks those up. But. Problem is that the government has created this perverse incentive, and the hospitalists in your listenership will understand this completely. Uh, they've they've created financial incentives for hospitals to diagnose somebody as positive for this virus. If you get if you get a diagnosis of virus positive, you get a bonus. Right.
2: It's like a sti- a stipend per per uh, per virus that yeah. comes in.
0: Yeah. And, and, um, there's all kinds of incentives, uh, in, and they've changed the definition that, so that if you die, I'm trained as a pathologist. Okay. One of the things that we go through is that, um, when you're doing an autopsy or, or you're, you're certifying cause of death, you gotta be really careful. Um, you know, uh, if it, you know, if, if somebody had a heart if they If they had major coronary artery disease um, or you know you could say if if uh if Joseph comes in and he's taken a bullet to the head and he dies, well, you could say that that was the consequence of uh cerebral hemorrhage because I guarantee Joseph had cerebral hemorrhage right and uh if I was a pathologist and I said cerebral hemorrhage if if I sent that report back to the surgeon, uh he'd laugh me out of the place. It's, you know, you're crazy. It wasn't cerebral hemorrhage, it was a gunshot to the head. Um, and so likewise, there's a whole, whole spectrum of disease that people have. And the question is, what is causative and what's correlative? And uh, the government has created this other perverse incentive for hospitals to determine uh, cause of death as due to the virus, when the truth is, Almost everybody that dies with this virus has multiple other comorbidities, and uh, not the least of which is being aged uh, to the point. I mean, if you want to look at the the, the um, actuarial tables, the majority of people dying with this disease are older than the average age of death. Right. Uh, so uh, there's that's that's part of the problem. As we you know, as you listen to the press. And and the fear that they try to drive where they say, oh, but we've had X hundred thousand deaths uh, from uh, this disease. Well, how many of those are actually due to the virus? In the kids, there's a great study out. It was in The Lancet, as I recall, where somebody went through, because there's only like 600 cases of death in children <coughs> in the United States with the virus. Okay, And somebody went through and looked at every single one of those cases and reviewed it. What they determined is every single one of those childhood cases had major other comorbidities. That's fancy medical talk that your audience will understand. Oh, yeah. Right. Um, you know, other diseases. So calling, saying that they died of the virus when they had a bunch of other major disease is disingenuous at best. And that's the game that's been played all the way through this to scare us and hype this whole thing. Now it's going to become increasingly tenuous as we move into uh, Omicron. But so the way the press plays that game is they talk about cumulative deaths. So they wrap all the deaths that happened in year one into that total number. And remember that in year one we were blowing people's lungs out with our uh, practices in ventilation. And uh, and frankly. Really damaging them, if not outright killing him, with remdesivir, uh, which has huge overlap with the spectrum of adverse events that the virus does. Note that it, you know, WHO doesn't recommend remdesivir. There's hardly any countries in the whole world that use remdesivir except for us, I guess, because it's pushed by Gilead and uh, by the NIH and Dr. Fauci.
1: You answered um, a question by only- uh, one of our our listeners, Bonnie. Bonnie, there's your there's your answer right there. Oh, Remdesivir. All right. I got to mention their name. Sorry. Yeah.
0: So it's okay. So, so, uh, the, the government has, let's say I, I like to try to give people the benefit of the doubt. So let's say they've been disingenuous. Um, but I also like to speak plainly cause I used to be a farmer, uh, and a carpenter. Um, they've been lying to us all the way through this sure. <laughs> and manipulating the data. It's not just the gubbies that have been doing it. It's Pfizer itself, so that this, there's this notable case of, of Maddie DeGuerre, uh, who was in the original Pfizer study, one of the 1,200 or so children that were in that study, and uh, she's listed as having the adverse event of stomach ache in the database for that study, when in fact she had a seizure shortly after taking the jab, um, became paralyzed. And she's now forever wheelchair bound with an NG feeding tube. Okay. But Pfizer in their report to the FDA listed that as stomachache. Then we have the new whistleblower that's come out that shows all kinds of malfeasance with the data. So we've, everybody's been lying to us left, right and center. With that said,
1: with that said, I've got three quick questions for you since we're running out of time. You okay with that? Yeah. Okay. With that said, do you agree with this statement? Is this a pandemic of the unvaccinated?
0: Absolutely not. And there was a editorial out the other day. Um, I forget what the outlet was. It might have been New York Times or it might have even been CNN. Uh, that, no, it was Atlantic. Said outright, we have to stop calling this a pandemic of the unvaccinated. That Omicron blows right through the vaccines, including triple jab people. Uh, So it's just no longer tenable. That's more propaganda and fear porn to try to to treat the unvaccinated differently. Remember that about half, at least 45 percent of the entire population in the United States has already been infected and recovered. So they have natural immunity.
1: Um, Is this also considered a true pandemic?
0: Well, that's a good question too. Um, a case can be made that what's happened is that they built a war plan through these serial war games that they did, a battle plan that assumed a highly lethal virus and a highly effective vaccine that they were going to eventually have to resort to authoritarian measures to deploy. That's the uh, scenario that has been developed serially over multiple years funded by Bill and Melinda Gates and the World Economic Forum and backed by the intelligence, let's say gently, um, community. And, uh, and what they did is they encountered the virus and they didn't adjust their battle plan. Now, if it, you know anybody that's in your audience that ha- knows anything about the art of war knows that your battle plan is only good until you first encounter the enemy and then you've got to modify it. Certainly. But they're, these are not the sharpest tools in the shed, frankly, that are making these decisions. And I think they are consumed with fear. I think that one of the big problems is that we have, you know, second tier intellectuals running our government um, and at best and politicians. And uh, they have been scared silly and they don't want to be caught in the wrong side of things. So you have very few politicians um, and, and uh, one of them is the governor of Florida uh, that uh, are willing to buck the 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 trend and actually think for themselves and do things like deploying early treatment, particularly antibodies in his case. So, um, that I, does it meet the criteria? It has certainly circled the world. Um, I can tell you from first person it's, this is not the flu. It's not nothing. It's not a nothing burger. Uh, is it a highly lethal pathogen? Um, yeah i guess if you don't get early treatment and you're in one of the super high risk groups but so is flu uh so uh you know all almost all of those same criteria can be used for influenza so i i just there's no question that we've had a gross overreaction and then then you have the next question usually is well is it serving some broader agenda and let's just park that one, and we'll make that the scope of a future podcast. Uh,
2: let, let, let me ask yeah. one, and then I'll let you. We've yeah. got about three minutes left, Doc. I, I've got one one question that's really been eating eating at our audience. Now that they're pushing the uh, the jab for ages five through twelve, what's the yeah. long term effects going going to be for the children? We, we get that. So all I'm the time.
0: totally. Thanks for that question. I am uh, totally focused on this. is, as they say, this is the hill that I will die on. I am totally focused on trying to stop the mandatory jabs in the kids. And I serve on the Unity Project, so I'm going to make a plug: uh, UnityProjectOnline.com. Uh, please join. It's California-based, but it's national and increasingly international. Focused on stopping the mandated jabs what were the consequences? So there's a great paper out from Hong Kong recently where they looked at all cases in adolescents and children of of myocarditis coming into the hospital. So this is hospitalized myocarditis post-vaccination, rigorous analysis, huge data set, Hong Kong, they did it right, good public health.
1: Inflammation of the heart tissue? Yeah,
0: examined. Inflammation, that's the that's the gentlest word. Damage is a better way to put it. Um, And the incidence is 1 in 2,700. If you take Maddie to Gary, as an example from the Pfizer study, you may have something in the range of 1 in 1,000 to 1 in 2,000 children experiencing significant neurologic damage. So uh, those are just two. There is a huge long list of adverse events. So there is potential. This the spike protein absolutely opens the blood-brain barrier. So this is the child that has taken the vaccine, and they seem kind of goofy afterwards, and maybe a little incoherent for a couple of days. Okay, that's that's blood-brain barrier problems. Okay, so that you know if, if it's causing opening the blood-brain barrier and things, toxins or other viruses or whatever get across in the brain, that's for life. Heart damage is for life. Heart. Cells don't regenerate; they scar. Um, well, who cares about scarring in the heart? Well, it actually conducts electricity differently when you have a scar, and that can be the basis for sudden cardiac death due to uh, alterations in in um, filling or or heartbeats, et cetera um, so there's two uh, you know we have uh, other forms of of vascular. Uh, issues. We talked about vasculitis. Um, The big one is the coagulation. So there's no question that the spike protein and these mRNA vaccines and and also the adenovirus vaccines. And there's a reason why in the Scandinavian countries, they're not using these vaccines in kids. Uh, So um, the the blood clotting and micro blood clotting is another one. Uh, And um, then there's the whole reproductive toxicology, which never got done because the FDA gave Pfizer and the others a pass on it. So uh, what we do know is that it's absolutely altering menstruation, altering menstruation in women. Um, there's growing evidence that we're seeing uh, uh, increased spontaneous abortion rate in the first and second trimester. We've actually had many of payments. our
1: many of our guests have reported that for themselves to us.
0: Um, yeah, so the menometriorage or dysmenorrhea, uh spontaneous increased spontaneous abortion, um some evidence of birth effects having to do with vasculitis or or other kind of syndromes. There uh I hear from midwives that they're observing uh lacunae or other damage in uh placentas that's unusual in their experience. And the thing in particular um it's important to remember that your your girls are born with all the eggs that they're ever going to have in their ovaries and that these lipids go to the ovaries. The lipid part doesn't mean the spike is going into That's something people kind of, it's not red herring, people get wrong. And does this have any long-term impact on reproductive health? Don't know because they didn't do the studies. Um, there is some modest decrease in reproductive rate in the rats that have been tested, but it's never really been done rigorously. So that's neither here nor there. So, you know, you, you're creating all of these risks. And um, as I, I put out a recorded statement on Sunday that is really uh, lighting people a lot of up, a lot of people up. It's quite blunt. It's made to design. It's only three minute clip and it's designed to help people that that aren't that are that are subject to all this propaganda and media push to really think twice before they vaccinate their children. Um, The thing is that the probability that your child will be significantly damaged uh, from the vaccine. If you consider one in 3000, let's say between one and 2000 and one in 3000 to be low and to be a tolerable risk, as far as I'm concerned, that's your choice as a parent. I disagree with that. I think that's pretty darn high. Um, I don't want to, I don't think that my uh, grandchildren should take a vaccine with that kind of risk for a disease <laughs> that they just, you know, shrug off. Um, it doesn't put them in the hospital. But, you know, I, I don't want to force parents to do things one way or the other way. I want to stop the government from inserting itself into the family and forcing parents to make a decision. But um, for those parents that do decide to go and have, can have their child take the jab, if, if the roulette ball drops into the wrong slot and you end up with a damaged child, you're going to have to live with that for the rest of your life. Right. And it can't be reversed. These kinds of damages can't be reversed. Mm-hmm. And so is that you know do you really want to play roulette with your child my opinion it's got to be crazy uh but you know i i think that that's a that's a personal decision that belongs in the family not at the desk of the governor of california or louisiana or you know phil and, or uh the you know um mayor of new york that's my key, opinion keywords being by choice by the way I I testified before a rabbinical court of senior rabbis, uh, Hasidic Jews in New York City. Um, So that was kind of a heavy thing. It's like being surrounded by Gandalf times 10. Um, And they were very ponderous, very conservative, very careful. And afterwards they came out, me and many other physicians testified and scientists. And they came out with a clear and unequivocal statement. um, Vaccination is prohibited. In children, full stop, and recommended against in adults. And one of the reasons is because the rabbinical rabbis are super focused on reproductive health for obvious reasons. It's a small sect, uh, religious, and they want to grow it. Um, but uh, they, they uh, were, there was no debate there. It was unequivocal. This is prohibited.
2: Good so to, to, su- to summarize it, ultimately, is we don't know what the long-term effects of children will be. We know there's a 1 in 2,000, 1 in 3,000 chance that they're going to develop a irrevocable uh, issue from getting the vaccine, but or the, the jab rather, uh, but we don't know what the long-term effects on children are at this point.
0: In terms of reproductive health, we don't know yet. In terms of uh, damage to the heart, uh, the, as far as I'm concerned, the data's in. Um, and... Uh, you know and then we have these reports like in vietnam of uh 200 kids go to the hospital and i think they're up to six deaths um that are directly attributable to the to the pfizer jab okay um so uh yeah i i think i think that the uh, the data are in now that's my opinion i wouldn't say we don't know there are things we don't know still but as far as i'm concerned we do know that even delta isn't causing significant morbidity and mortality in children. Children shrug this off. They've got a great thymus. Their immune systems rock and roll compared to us old farts. Right. Notice the gray beard. I notice the gray beard over there. Yes. Um, yes. And uh, and um, uh, so they're they're really not unless they have major other medical problems. They're not at risk for this disease, and they are at risk for significant damage from the from the uh, vaccine. Uh, in in any normal world, in in the that I've you know what I've been trained in, what I've experienced as a vaccinologist for decades and decades, the answer would be no, thank you very much. Go back to the drawing board. Right. Instead, what we get is a is you know this famous member of the FDA Vaccine Related uh, and Biologics Advisory Committee saying, well, we don't know what the risks are in children, so we're just going to have to go ahead and vaccinate them. That is an insane, absurd response that flies directly in the teeth of everything that we have developed over decades about how to proceed with vaccine safety and clinical development. And then, as if that wasn't enough, we have this thing called the Nuremberg Code, and and the Helsinki Accords, and um, the uh, the common rule that's in federal law. Of course, now they're saying, well, the, you know, in Germany they're saying. Well, we need to now modify the Nuremberg Code. What?
2: Wow. Um, (laughs) uh,
0: To to justify what we're doing. It's quite clear. You know, we we hung a bunch of people over this. We fought a war. Okay. Your parents, my parents fought a war. And uh, we won. And we all agreed, among other things, that it was not okay to force people, let alone children, to take a medical procedure with an investigational product not you okay can't absolutely not you can't give
2: in- informed consent at that point cuz you don't know what the the long term effects are going to be
0: absolutely and then as if that's not bad enough they've done everything apparently in their power to hide those adverse effects from us and you know anybody that reports it on facebook gets uh deleted and uh um you know now and the same with uh, twitter and and I don't know why I'm still on twitter I try really hard to walk, walk the, you know, walk the line, um, uh, but uh, but we are subjected to an unprecedented level of propaganda and censorship over anything that has to do with risks or concerns, concerns regarding sex.
1: Okay, so so you had mentioned that. There's a lot for another podcast. Do you think uh, we can get you back on again? Because we want to respect your time. <laughs> so I've got,
0: I've got yeah, notes. I've got notes. Okay, cool. Um, well, I, I hope this has helped your viewership. I do podcasts sometimes, six a day. Oh wow. Um, it's, it's a little exhausting. Sure. Um, I am setting up a studio, as I see you have. So hopefully, it'll get a little more professional, rather than just doing it from my laptop. Uh, and you know how to book me um, because awesome. you did it before. So, yes. doctor, okay.
1: I want to well, th- hang on, hang on, hang on. I got, I got just quick, rapid-fire questions for you, just in, just in case for some reason I can't get your background. On. Um, one, how do we get your book since it's been removed?
0: Oh, that that Jill doesn't even want me to put it out anymore because she was keeping it updated, and it's like a year and a half since then. Okay, uh, so ever evolving. Uh, that's it's. It's just, yeah, it's outdated now. She doesn't want me to put it in circulation.
1: Okay. Uh, One question I had with swine flu and the vaccine. Handful of, well, I don't know how many deaths off the top of my head. You would know this. Vaccine was pulled, never made it. How can the COVID-19 vaccines continue as people are
0: dying, but swine flu was removed? Because they don't care. They don't. Care. Great
1: question. Okay. Great the, <laughs> rules, the rules
0: no longer apply. The FDA is is and the CDC have undergone regulatory capture, and the NIH, and the government is lawless. There's no other way to put it. They don't care.
1: Have you seen? Just because we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, we had someone on from Australia. They actually have, I'm going to call them concentration camps. They call them containment camps, quarantine camps. Have you? Yeah, they're doing
0: that in Austria Austria now too, and they're probably going to do it in Germany.
1: And uh, piggybacking on that question, where is the end of this? How long is this going to last? What is the major end game? Is it a new world order rabbit hole? Whoa, sorry, had to
0: ask so so there's there's a a version of this story that is really dark, and uh that this is absolutely all about the the reset and um the world economic forum and driving us all towards a social credit system like they use in China with our little uh, digital passports, and you know the extension of that is well, we'll' all be chipped like my dogs and my horses are um in one way or another. That's one version of that story and that they've overreached here. They've blown it, uh, but uh, they're still going to muscle forward. Um, I'm hearing two versions of the end game here, uh, both of them influenced by Omicron. So Omicron looks right now like it is a godsend. We'll just you know leave it at that, whatever your persuasion is. Um, and and I that doesn't mean that it wasn't Uh, genetically engineered or something else, but there's odd things about Omicron, but just from a functional sense, it's highly infectious. It blows right through the vaccines and um, it is producing mild clinical disease. Okay. So that's what we would hope might be the endpoint of a viral evolution as it moves into a new population, a new host. Um, So uh, let's hope that Omicron, in a, in a perverse way, does sweep through the population, does give us something akin to herd immunity. And then that's a whole nother broadcast about what do we do after that in terms of childhood vaccination. Sure. That's a, there's some fascinating uh, epidemiology there. Yep. So there's one version that Omicron sweeps through, and six months from now, it's a nothing burger, and we're all focused on the economy and the recession. There's a lot of investors that think that's how this is going to play. Um, a version of that that my wife, uh, who's quite cynical, thinks will play out is that that's mostly what'll happen, and NIH will take credit for it, and we'll hear all kinds of mainstream, you know, legacy media press reports about how the government saved us from ourselves, uh, and uh, they'll try to sweep all this stuff under the rug. Uh, another version of this is the Gert Bundenbosch uh, dark vision um, where uh, we evolve a more highly pathogenic virus because we've stupidly been uh, trying to deploy global, you know, universal vaccination to oh, the peak of an epidemic. Um, so uh, I don't know. I, my crystal ball is a little murky right now. Um, but I can guarantee that uh, that Provda on the Potomac and the other outlets are going to continue to been this, and, uh, and we're going to see all kinds of efforts, as we're starting to see in the New York Times, by the way, of, of the uh, main legacy media backpedaling and trying to cover their tracks. Because uh, uh, they have, you know, there's probably at least half a million excess deaths in the United States due to suppression of early treatment alone. Yeah. So, so media, media literally does have blood on their hands and uh, they're going to do everything they can to escape and wiggle out of uh, culpability, but it's up to us to hold them, hold their feet to the fire as far as I'm concerned.
1: Our our Australian guests really hammered home the point of not even talking about suppressing, but just the psychological effect and the suicide and numbers and uh no one ever talks about that part and how many people died from
0: that. Oh if you want to go down there that's a that's a whole nother podcast that I've heard yes, a couple of times. Uh the, the damage to children is enormous. Drug abuse, uh depression, uh suicide, things that have never been seen in, in children, developmental delays, twenty point IQ drop uh, delays in speech and cognition, uh, that, no, this, this is going to, there's damage that's been done here that will last, um, uh, you know, until three of us are all on the grave.
2: Well, doctor, I want to thank you for taking some time out of your schedule to come on, uh, our cast today. It's, it's been insightful. I'm sure our viewers are going to absolutely eat this up and we hope that, uh, you've enjoyed your time with us and we weren't uh, overly cumbersome to you.
1: <laughs> This was awesome. Okay, <laughs> I hope we get to do Good. it again.
0: Give them, right. give them hell. Gonna right. try. <laughs> Thanks, Dasha. Okay. Sure. Bye, bye.